You are listening to Let's Talk Tribe, the official Let's Go Tribe podcast. Swung on, lines the deep left field. It is gone! It went deep right. Batista's going to win the night. Start the fireworks show. This is Let's Talk Tribe, the official Let's Go Tribe podcast, episode 117. I'm your host, Matt Lyons, and on this week's episode, we'll recap a partially great, partially depressing week of games, talk about Francisco Lindor being back, an important update on our uniform research project that we didn't do and somebody else did, but we're going to talk about it anyway, and the Indians pro Brat Filping Nest, and I'm going to make Merritt answer for his man, Cody Anderson, who did not get sweaty, did not pitch well, and blew everything on Saturday night. Of course, joining me for all that and more is none other than Mr. Merritt Rolfing. Merritt, how you doing? The Indians have a losing Pythagorean record. Why must you hurt? Who hurt I just you, found that out literally just now while I was on mute. <laughs> I just found that out just now. They've been outscored by one run this year. Now, admittedly, it doesn't help to be outscored 5 to 11, 11 to 5, geez, whatever. And then also 8 to 1. Whenever they lose, they lose hammeringly. And so, Matt, I'm wondering if this is going to be a reverse of the 2015 season. We all know that is the Jerry Sands season where they were. Every time they won, they won by like a million runs, but they didn't win enough. So every time they lose this year, they're going to lose by a million runs, but win by like two. Basically the Royals of 2015. I'll take that. I think that's better. I mean, winning run-run games is fun. And then just get blown out so you don't have to watch the whole thing. Yeah, or you get to watch... You know, or you get to watch your favorite uh, pitchers pitch, and you get to watch uh, the hitters just try and tee off as much as possible, case in point. The uh, Indians' new shortstop, Francisco Lindor. Uh, Yeah. So, Who, anyway, by the way, it's pretty good. He's doing all right. Turns out, good. <laughs> uh, the Indians did play. They played some games. Played the Mariners. They swept them, which I didn't even realize till like way after the game. Like, oh, that's a sweep. And then I had to tweet the the Golden Girls gif. Um, they won the first game against the Braves, which was a doubleheader. And then, good lord, they blow game two. Trevor Bauer pitched a really good game, and then a mix of everybody plus Cody Anderson in the bullpen blew it. And then game three, which is the disaster from the beginning. Um, Carlos Santana's bat heated up again. He was seven for nineteen. Jason Kipnis came back. He was 7 for 20. He was good. Francisco Lindor came back. He was good. Of course he was. Jake Bowers was 5 for 17 with a home run. He's starting to come around now. And, of course, Roberto Perez had a home run because hell yeah. Um, so let's start with – I guess let's start with Trevor Bauer, Freddie Freeman, this whole thing that happened. Um, I don't even know what's a thing. But Trevor Bauer, he started game two, obviously, of the series. He pitched six really good innings. And then afterwards, he had a weird comment, um, which he told me to see. He said, I didn't, it didn't seem like they wanted to hit tonight. It seemed like they were looking to take pitches and foul pitches off. You got to give them credit. They made me throw a lot of pitches and they made me get out of the game in the seventh or eight, instead of the eighth or ninth. So I guess good job on their approach on them, which is a really snarky thing to just say about a, a solid approach. <laughs> that's, that's just what they did. That's obviously what they were trying to do. I think he was just trying to say they were cowards for not trying to hit them, but I don't know. What do you make of, of Trevor Bauer? Is he misinterpreting what they were doing? Is he just upset that somebody found a way to beat him? Cause this seems like how you beat Trevor Bauer now, if, that got that far into his head, so maybe we'll see more of it. But when you make a Trevor Bauer start against the Braves and how he reacted to it, so the last most lasting image I have of like the late '90s Yankees is uh, that they just they did exactly that. They fouled off ball after ball after ball and just did and just you know took tough pitches constantly. And obviously the the umps were cheating in, in their favor. We all know that side of things. But suffice to say, that's just what great teams do. And I don't understand why he says such a thing. Like. I, I don't know. I I feel like I remarked on that on Twitter actually about their lack of um, of wanting to attack Bauer in the first inning. Let me see if I can't review my own tweets. Let's see. Are you well, talking the Braves specifically, or just in general? No, the Braves in, in that the Braves only had three called strikes in the top of that first against Bauer. So to me, they seemed aggressive. Is the thing. I guess I, I think that's what I'm saying. Whenever the ball was in the zone, they were going after it. They were just laying off pitches that were. Um, so no, I don't know. I, I I I just just based on my own opinion of what was happening, I think it was a completely different thing altogether. Was he was throwing good pitches, but they're really good is a thing we we don't have we can't overlook here, uh, and we can touch on that a little bit in a bit with Shane Bieber as well. But they're an incredibly talented team, and. They just have guys who make a lot of good, solid contact, and he was throwing pitches a lot that he, they couldn't make contact on, and so they were fouling them off. But because they're good, they were not striking out. 
he still struck out 10 times in, you know, six innings. So it's not like he, he wasn't successful, but I don't know. That's, that's what it would be like if, if this were a game in October. I don't think anyone in the team's rotation were they to make it to, to a series in October is getting past the sixth or seventh inning. You know, it's, it doesn't happen in October, and this is a team built for October. So, no, it's, what a weird thing to say, I guess, you know? Like, they don't want to hit tonight? What does that even mean? I think he was just frustrated. I mean, they did foul 31 balls off him, so, I mean, he's not wrong. And then Freeman also said, Freddie Freeman, he said, we heard that. It makes no sense. I don't think he knows what he was saying. It was 40 degrees out. He's a good pitcher. We're going to try to work you. I think it's usually one of the most free-swinging teams there is. I think that comment is just he hasn't done his research. Yeah, and like I was saying, they, they had, like, in the first inning alone, they had three called strikes. That means every other strike. And he struck out the side, like, Maybe not the side of the first, but you know, he, I think he had a couple of strikeouts in the first inning. They were all swing strikes, right? All but two, all but three strikes he threw in in the first inning were were swinging in some way, whether it was a foul or just the swing and a miss. So they were free swinging. He, they were just making contact, and also it was forty degrees. I don't really know the bearing of that, but whatever. So yeah, this is just a really good team. Like, I, I it's early, I know, but like they have like. Eight guys in their starting lineup with OPS is over 900. So, yeah, man, I don't know. This is just how good baseball hitters hit the baseball. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but somebody in Let's Go Tribe comments, they said, like, after the Indians swept the Mariners, like, they beat a hot offense. Now they're going to face a good offense. I thought that was a really good analogy because the Mariners were really hot coming into the series and they got shut down really easily. And we saw the Braves, I don't think they were necessarily on fire, but they came in and they showed that. Just if you're a good team with a good approach, you can put together a lot of good hits, even against a really good pitching staff like the Indians have. So that's going to be tough seeing what we're looking at in the playoffs compared to just losing to the AL Central, which I mentioned to you before the show. I didn't know this either, that before this series, the Indians were undefeated outside of the AL Central, which seems bizarre to me considering they're going to get so many other wins out of that garbage division. But now they've got most of them out of them. So maybe we'll see something different happen. I don't know, but. This is one of those series that I want to see the Indians do well in just as a as a proof of point that they're not just going to win because they're going to beat bad teams in the AL Central. And we almost had it. They, they won the first game. It was a really good game by the Indians. And then the second one, if they didn't blow it, I mean, that's that's two out of three against a really good team. But that's not the way it happened. So. Well, and that's the thing, too. If you look at it, I mean, they outplayed the, the Braves for 17 innings. And then they pooped on themselves for one. And then for... And then they had a bad couple innings, and then they were good again. Like, I don't know. You could argue one way or the other or both ways, but I don't think they were outplayed by any stretch of the imagination. I think they, I think their bullpen showed for what they were in the end of the second game of the doubleheader. And then uh, just... Yeah, Merritt, who in the bullpen specifically showed who they were in that game? Dan Otero, the guy who came in and gave up a home run. Dan Otero specifically? <laughs> I mean, come on. Are we really going to dance around that issue? Like, if Dan Otero is, doesn't do his thing, the Indians win that game. Um, if, I don't know, Tyler Olsen doesn't walk someone. If Adam Simber, Cody Anderson is the there least of my worries here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, listen, Mary, that was that was the end of a doubleheader. The Indians were up by like seven runs. I said, you know what? I'll call it a night tonight, and I'll wake up ready to watch primetime Indians the next day. And then I woke up, and good lord, everything was on fire. So yeah, I was I was at a bar watching on my phone, becoming more and more sad as I, as I continued to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I did not watch. I didn't watch recaps of. I read recaps of it. I didn't watch whatever happened. I don't want to watch what happened. I don't. You can't make me. I'll it was you. one of those things where you could feel it happening. You're like, oh, oh no. Oh, God. They realize that Adam Simba was in, and that's like their second, their third best option out of the bullpen. And you realize that's not a good option out of the bullpen. I like him, and I think he will be good at some point. But uh, as soon as he came in, and who did he face? It was one of the big lefties they have. At, at, at any rate, yeah, he just... Now, one thing that carried over from the first game is I saw a lot of people were up in arms over the fact that Terry Francona used Brad Hand in the first game of like a four-run lead in a low-leverage situation, and then he wasn't available in the second game. But I don't know, how how enraged are you about this? I'm sort of, it's one of those things where if the results are slightly different, nobody cares. Like if Dan Otero doesn't give up a home run and the Indians win, I don't think anybody really cares that Brad Hand was used in the first game to ensure a win instead of waiting for a situation in the second one. I don't, I, I don't know. I think he just wanted to get him some innings. And anyway, I think part of the thinking maybe from Tito was that 
if he just wanted to get Brad Hand some innings that day, it was more likely he'd get him then than opposed to Trevor Bauer, who can throw a million pitches in the second game. I don't know, but I think using Brad Hand was weird, but I don't think it was completely indefensible. No, not at all. I mean, the the fact that your bullpen comprised of major league pitchers with when you have a lead like that, again, I can't point out enough that they had a ninety eight percent win expectancy going into that inning. Ninety eight. Uh, the fact that a collection of Simber Olsen and Anderson can't get three outs before giving up five runs or whatever it is, is depressing to say the least. You know, like that's, they should be able to do that. Again, Otero, we know is exactly who he is. I don't know. They were all just very bad and they were just all very bad. It was the Olsen one more than anything was the most distressing. And then to see Cody Anderson in that situation, it's head scratching because I had forgotten that they had used Brad hand also. And in my head, I'm like, why are they using Brad Hand? Where is he? But he was in the bullpen, not being able to be used. So it shouldn't have been a situation that they needed him because, again, they Bauer could throw a million pitches, and then also they were up by what eight, six runs or whatever. So it's just an utter collapse by a by a by a garbage collection of, of bullpen pitchers. Um, there's other arms. I, it would be nicer that they could use. Also, it would be nicer they could, you know, sign Craig Kimbrell or something. I don't know. Surely there's someone outside there that can throw the ball better than one of these guys. <laughs> I feel like the Indians are, there's no chance they sign Craig Campbell there. I think they're all in on, we talked about this before. I think they're all in on the, you can find a reliever just about anywhere train. Which is fair. I mean, relievers like right, they yeah, had the last couple wrong. of years is rare to say the least. You know, like you can, you can find guys who do come out of nowhere and are good for a year or two. We've seen that happen time and again. Worst case scenario, they have they, they get someone coming or you know coming up at the the you know the all star breaker at the trade deadline. So no one's trading a guy right now. I guess the only guy you know right yeah. only teams right now whose seasons are all but over are basically the Marlins who already agreed to that going into the season, um, and the Reds. I guess I don't know. <laughs> there might be some interesting players on the Reds they can get. No, there's some arm, definitely some arms on the Reds that I would love for the Indians to to get one of. Guys like uh, what Iglesias is very good. Rusty Iglesias Garrett. is incredible. Yeah, they even uh, dare trade him. Yeah. Amir Garrett, you know, guys like that. I mean, obviously, yeah, I don't know if you trade a guy like that at this point. I don't, I don't know where they find themselves. Give me in him in their re- yes. <laughs> one Amir Garrett, please. Four hundred and forty-two yeah. <laughs> ERA plus. Yes, please. Thank you, sir. One more. Thanks. So, yeah, to me, yeah. The, the more distressing thing about the series wasn't the bullpen imploding. It was the next game on Sunday, on Sunday Night Baseball, which was Shane Bieber just laying a turd out there. Two home runs given up. He he walked one. He only struck out three and two, two and a third innings. He just did not look good at all. I mean, for Cody Anderson's credit, he came in and pitched two and a half innings and only Ooh. gave up two runs. So. Checkmate, bitch. I mean, but that, <laughs> that's just a weird outing for Shane Bieber. He's so bad. I, um... I don't believe that's who he is. Even if I, I think he can pitch better than like that even against a good team like the Braves. I think mean, it was just a bad. No, I, I, mean, I agree with you. I am. I'm actually literally writing about this and you will see it on Wednesday, but his location was just not on. Basically. If you ever go look at his pitch chart, it is so clustered around the outside corner. If he's facing a left, uh, a, a righty or, an, or the inside corner is facing a lefty. And he just wasn't hitting that with any consistency. That, and one of the two home runs that Donaldson hit off him was inches, was several inches above the strike zone. In location, so he, I, I just don't think he had it really that night. Um, and if he doesn't have his command, he doesn't have anything. That and he just doesn't have a pitch that's good at getting good lefties out with any consistency. Uh, he has good pitching, but he doesn't have. Again, if the location's not there, he doesn't have something to get him out. You know what I mean? Like someone like say Corey Kluber, if if he's not on, at least he can throw a bunch of filth, and you'll still kind of be caught in between a lot. Same thing with Trevor Bauer. Uh, Shane Bieber has always been known for his control. If he doesn't have it, then he just doesn't have anything because he can't tunnel and he can't piggyback pitches off of other pitches and he can't make one pitch look like another until the last second and thus everything looks much worse. And then, of course, the fact he just doesn't throw a change up at all, that is a real problem. I mean, he, he needs it. It's the most vital piece of his repertoire right now since he doesn't throw anything else that runs like that. So I, I just I just think it was a bad night for him. Um, I don't put any more credence into that than I do any of his other starts. It was the best team he's faced in a long time. So there's that. I don't know. Yeah, this is a bad string of of just missing it for for a night, I think. I mean, it's Carrasco. Yeah. I think Kluber might have some deeper issues maybe, but, I mean, Bieber has lost it for a day, and then 
Yeah, it was just a weird run. He's twenty three. That like like that's the thing too. Right, he yeah. looks like he's a thirty two year old years old, you know. But he is twenty three <laughs> years old. He's super young, yeah. and like the sky is still a little bit slightly lower sky than maybe than than we are excited for. But I mean, it's he's still got two strikes, and so yeah. One of the things we talked about last week um, was the idea of Francisco Lindor coming back. Well, when we talked, he hadn't even played a rehab game yet. I know, the hope right? Was that he would start the next day, and then he played in two of those. He homered a bunch, and then he was all of a sudden in the majors. Um, there was a little concern rounding the bases in the minors, and I think he still has it in the majors that he was limping and favoring that foot. But they said he's wearing a stint, or is that the right word, stint? That I messed that up. I don't know. Splint. That's the one. But he's got that on his ankle, and it just makes him look kind of awkward. But, man, he was he's loving baseball. He was smiling the whole time. But seeing him score and doing that little run in the home plate with a big smile on his face was just the best thing ever. I feel like he's growing even more into his personality than he ever has before. I don't know if it's part of knowing that MLB will embrace it more because he seemed kind of shy about it a couple years ago. Like, he didn't want to show up anybody by being so excited about everything. But this year, he just let it go. He's, he's just going to be Francisco Lindor and smile about everything and hit balls, smack dingers, and I mean, we didn't get to see his ankle tested on defense a whole lot, but already at the plate, he he looks pretty good, so it's, he did, it's really encouraging that he's back. He did misplay a, some batted ball up the middle. I think that was early on, too, that if he had made been able to make that play, it would have shortened up that first inning of Bieber, which may have changed this, the face of the entire game. Who knows? Which could have had something to do with it. it was, he, just, he, he missed it by half a step, basically, which, I don't know. Maybe that's something. But again, it's a temporary something if, at best. So yeah, if it's half a step, that feels like something that is just—it's his first game back. Like you said, he's right. still wearing something around his ankle. So I'm not, I'm not the student piano. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's it's yeah. good. It's nice having back though. The the lineup looks. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, but the lineup looks way better with him and honestly with Kitmus in it. You know, they, I'm saying that they rolled out Lindor, Martin, Ramirez, Santana, Gonzalez, Kipnis, Perez, Bowers, Naquin. Uh, I mean, that's a real I, lineup right there. I would like it if Bowers were five spots higher because he was hitting that well. But what can you do? You know, I'll, um, you can quibble with Martin leading off instead of Lindor. Uh, but how? Well, no, real... Lindor is leading off, isn't he? He let yeah, off. Yeah, he the, is. The that's what I'm saying. I, I, I'd almost rather. Oh, have, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, just because he's he gets on base and he he's been getting on base is you know, 375 on base percentage. We're talking about Martin. So, but at the same time, I think if Lindor comes back and says he's comfortable hitting leadoff, you just you just right. give him the leadoff spot. No, no, oh no, oh hands down, yeah. I, I'm I'm 100 with you. It's just, uh, if I had a minor quibble, it's that that right. and then the um the Bowers not hitting as well as I'd like him to right now. But that's beyond that. Like yeah, no, it it looks like a real legitimate lineup, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, is this for better or worse? The Indians at full strength until the trade deadline, I guess. I mean, literally, there's nobody else injured. So yeah, like what else is there? You know what I mean? Like they they, they dumped uh, Hanley Ramirez. I Which is sad, because he was fun. I Definitely. I like to have him around. He had a couple missiles, so that was pretty cool. If they don't really have a true DH. I don't want to see Jake Bowers DHing a whole lot, so I don't no, know. No, no. He should he should be playing in the outfield. Like, I, if there's a second quibble I could have, it would be that Carlos Gonzalez shouldn't be playing the outfield at all. If anything, he should be DHing, so... Yeah, well, I think for now the the plan, the reason they got rid of Hanley, I've, I've heard, is that Lindor is going to be doing a lot of DHing to get days off. So oh, okay, that makes sense. I guess that makes sense, but man, nobody's even claimed Hanley, I don't think, because he's been DFA'd. So I, I want to see him lined up somewhere. He was he had the chance to be fun. He's still hitting the ball hard, but he just couldn't make contact the way he was supposed to. Yeah, no, he he's walking and stuff too, so. but like, like, he's basically putting up like a Jason Giambi circa 2013 or whatever line. Which I mean, again, nice. It's a nice guy to have around. They can just kind of come in and hit a hit a bomb every now and again, but. I don't know if that's something you, something you need. You know, I mean, if he's not giving the clubhouse magic that Big G did, which I don't know if Hanley Ramirez was or not. Who's to say? I don't know. Um, so, Mary, I want to follow up something very important from last week's podcast that we talked about. We had mentioned that that Indians, it's curious to see who uses what jersey to pick um, between the five starters this week and or this year. And then, uh, naturally, one of our listeners already does that. <laughs> he tracks it. Um, Cleo Mason on, on Twitter, and he emailed me. It's here. He tracked it. He just said as part of his journaling to track the the jerseys. He mainly tracks it for to see which one is quote unquote unlucky and unlucky just for fun to see. He has a feeling that one is worse than the other. Um, but then he went through last season just to just to give us at least one year of data to use to see who picked what, and it's it's kind of cool. I think so. Corey Kluber, we had mentioned that we both kind of thought he used each one of them. Uh, he's one of the only ones. Him and Bauer are the only ones to use the home white jerseys at all. Clevenger used it once, and that's it. <laughs> Carlos Carrasco. Really? Um, 
Yeah, Shane Bieber never used the home whites. Clevenger used them again all but once. Um, so it's just those two who use the home whites. Trevor Bauer. I, I just have this firm image in my head of him wearing the home uh, of Clevenger wearing them. Maybe does he wear the creams? God no, those don't exist anymore. Well, yeah, but what about that? It's just this is all just this year, I guess. I guess it's all just this year. No, that was twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. Yeah, but they existed last year, didn't they? Did they not exist last year? Oh, the creams. Those have been gone for a couple of years. Really? Yeah, Damn, ding dong. Those are dead. Those are the worst. We've talked You're about the worst. Before. They're god awful. Um, Clevenger is also the only one to use the blue special home jerseys last year when he had what was the blue jersey with the red C cap, which are fantastic. Hmm. Um, he never wore those a whole lot. Um, Do they have a red C cap with a red brim? I don't think so. I think it was always the blue, right? No, they do. No, that was with the cream. Okay. No, that was was an all red hat with a blue C. Right. Isn't that what you said? No, no. Blue. So blue crown, red C, red brim. Because that's a hat I want now. That now that I think it exists, I want it. (laughs) Yeah. It actually is the hat they wear right now. Actually, that that is the current hat because they replaced the Wahoo with the C. All right, we're fine. (laughs) All right. I thought I'd seen that. Yeah, but looking at this data, I thought it would be more profound than it was, but it's just kind of we yeah, got to delve deeper, man. We got to we got to dig. Like, I mean, you want to go back the whole five years? And see yeah, we need to go and... back until basically until um. Well, what what would the be, what's the beginning of this? What do you think? Kluber's first start, Bauer's first start. Carrasco has been on the team the longest. I don't want to go back to two thousand nine. I just don't have time for this. Two thousand. We, we go through two thousand fourteen because that was the Cy, the first Cy Young year. We'll do that. There we go. And so we now have our plan. I was trying to think back too of I remember Mike Clevenger in the Whites, but it's yeah, just this I mean, one maybe game we... on August nineteenth. That's it. Really, it is. It's I one mean, game. I'm looking through all the pictures of it. It's all he did it in the playoffs too. Of the or no, that, that, that's just a picture of the nineteenth game. He always wears the blues. I did not know that. So there's one hmm. profound thing to come out of it <laughs> is that Clevenger wears them much more than we thought he did, which is kind of cool. Interesting. Um, this is amazing. And for what it's worth, as far as the the luck thing. The Indians were undefeated last year wearing the special holiday jerseys. I didn't know that. Memorial Day, 4th of July, Mother's Day, Father's Day. They were 8-0, so that's kind of neat. And what were the, the rest of them were holiday kind of jerseys? Are those just the, the American flag hats? Yeah, the flag hats for 4th of July. Mother's Day is pink, Father's Day is blue. And the Indians were undefeated. So that's that's really the only conclusion out of the wins and losses. Well, then we need more holidays. I think in general America needs more holidays <laughs> anyway because we all work too hard as it is. So, no, yes, let's... Yes. We need special jerseys for like National Hot Dog Day, mm-hmm. and Brownie Day, and Slap Your Cousin Day. You know, all the holidays. Un-o-fish. There's always one coming up like every holidays. single day. <laughs> Something else that's happened since we last talked is that uh, somebody flipped a bat. He wasn't happy. He yelled some words that got him suspended for a game. And now we're talking about bat flipping again. So <laughs> Tim Anderson on the White Sox, he, he hit a home run off the, the Royals. He was really enthusiastic about it he it's more than a flip less of a flip more of a throw directly at the ground and yelling at his dugout to get him all excited then he rounded the bases of course that clued in everybody in the media to start asking how players thought about bat flips mm. um, ryan lewis of the akron beacon journal asked around the indians locker room and mostly it was jake bowers that was like hell yeah bat flips he said yeah, cool, i'm not out there to be boring i'm out there to entertain the people in the stands and people watching from home i think i'd much rather see you hit a hundred home run and flip your bat thousand feet in the air just to put your head down and run Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Um, and then when he talked about um, like getting hit, he said, I think that's bullshit about <laughs> throwing at people. I think it's really cool. So Tyler Nakin was also in on it. Mike Clevenger was all for it. Kind of a more pitcher's approach to it. Like just don't show up pitchers when you do it. He said it's fine. But no, then Trevor Bauer, yeah. like right after it happened, he went on MLB Network Radio and said that he's all for it. Um, he said it's a really Trevor Bauer going to say, like it's hard to make it. It's hard to hit the ball at all. If you manage to hit a home run off me, go ahead and flip your bat. I'll just want to strike you out next time. So then I also looked into maybe some other players that are into it. It's confirmed. If you can remember Jose Ramirez a couple years ago flipping right in front of Paul Molitor. Ooh, that was so good. That's my favorite bat flip. He gets Paul Molitor in the whole dugout, and the Twins are so upset about it, and Jose just rounds the bases. Mm, Um, That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Roberto Perez, I didn't know this one. He flipped his bat in the World Series a little bit when he homered. Yep. Uh, Remember, he homered twice in the same game. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and Carlos Gonzalez, who's in India now, but when he was the, with the the Rockies, he had a borderline. He hit a big home run track in 2013. He sort of he set it down aggressively. Where that's going to require more investigation as he's pro bat flipper. But I don't. Yeah, so the Indians they like bat flipping. I like bat flipping. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you might like bat flipping. So big fan. What do you think it's all? Yeah, it, it's fun. I don't. Oh, know. Oh, damn! It was a huge wrong. home run he hit. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Uh, Carlos Gonzalez. I mean, come on. 
He always hits it like that. If you ever watch uh, Cargo yeah. hit a home run, he always hits it the same way. He just kind of sl- like hits it. And just like the, the, the bat just like falls out of his hands in those casual of manners. I think that's, that's almost better than bat flipping. I think is letting it fall like that. It's so cool. I love it. There's um I can't remember what league it is, but it's no you know maybe I don't I, it's, I don't remember where it is. Who am I kidding? But like they, they bat flip on like pop flyouts and stuff. That's why I love Yasuo Puig. He just bat when he first came up, just bat flipping all over the place, like flying out to center field. Bat flip. He's <laughs> he's the man because it's just it's I, how the the bat comes out of his hand. What what do you want? This is follow through. It just happens to be <laughs> baller as hell. I saw someone mention that somebody should flip their bat, get drilled with a pitch, and then flip it again as they go to first base. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate. <laughs> like, fuck you. I don't care. That's when we see that is when I'll have peaked and I can die happy. Oh, like if, um, the, if Tim Anderson just flipped his go. bat again after getting drilled, that'd be the best. All right, man. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll preview the upcoming Marlin series with Fish Stripes managing editor, Levi Sussman. facing the rebuilding marlins this week and again next week um it's a, it's a team we not don't see very often but we'll be seeing them quite a bit coming up to get a better idea of what the tribe will be facing we're joined by fish stripes managing editor eli sussman eli thanks for joining us yeah the absolute pleasure to be on with you guys and to be talking with a competitive team it should be a interesting series so one of the um i know the the marlins are pretty clearly rebuilding right now which i don't think anybody is quite in denial of but is there going to be anything on the Marlins, whether it's a player or just something about the team in general, that's, that could take the Indians by surprise this weekend that we might see, um, whether it's just an interesting player or just a way the Marlins do something that'll be a surprise to the Indians this week and I guess next week as well? Oh, well, all the interesting things are inside the starting rotation at the moment. Um, it's 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 really just a, it's been an exciting renaissance, really, of their starting pitching because um, in case you weren't aware all these years where the Marlins have been mediocre, you know, competitive, but never able to get over the hump. They were held back by their starting pitching. Um, aside from the great late Jose Fernandez, they always struggled with their depth. They had guys that struggled to miss bats throughout their entire rotation. And then even in AAA, they just struggled so much to create guys who had swing and miss stuff, who had really strong repertoires. And that's something that's finally turning the corner. And you'll be able to see that really their whole rotation have guys that on any given night can dominate. And almost every single one of them has had one of those really dominant starts at some point so far this season. It's Jose Ureña, it's Caleb Smith, Trevor Rogers, Pablo Lopez, and Sandy Alcantara. And uh, if you're outside the National League East, then you've probably only heard of Jose Ureña. Like all, all those other guys are a little bit less experienced. All the others, aside from Ureña, just entering their second seasons in the majors and all in their first full seasons. So later on in the year, some of them may be facing innings limits, but for right now, it's just a, it's such a exciting group, really. I mean, all of them have signature pitches that really get you excited. And uh, for all the concerns about the farm system right now and about the player development staff, one thing we have seen is that these, this group has learned somehow they've in most cases, they've been able to get these guys to throw harder. And it's a really simple but really important concept that you can see in pretty much all of these arms is that over the last couple of years and their development, they've simply gained fastball velocity, and that allows all their secondary pitches to play off of that. Uh, if there's any chance that the Marlins have of winning even one of these games coming up or even shock the world and split two out of four or even just like pull off a miracle and win most of the games – it's going to be because the starting pitchers have stepped up. Now, Eli, the um, the name most people know about, obviously, with the Marlins, isn't even on the on the field ever at this point. It's Derek Jeter, the CEO of the team. Um, I have many questions about the starting rotation. Researching the this team in advance of this interview, obviously, I was I was surprised as you were mentioning about these some of these young arms you mentioned. Um, but I have to know your opinion on the removal of the of the sculpture of Homer of the amazing piece of art that was in the center field of Marlins stadium for a couple of years. What did you think of, of Jeter's decision to move, to remove that, to change the color of the walls to, in my eyes, really remove some character from what I thought was a garishly beautiful stadium. 
Well, this is a sore topic for me and for pretty much everyone with the staff, not because we disagree with it, but because we realize that so many others uh, outside of the market are like you and believe that it was so unique and important to the experience, when in reality, uh, it was one of the only unanimous great moves that have been made so far because it was meant to cater to out, you know tourists. It was made, meant to cater to people looking from Miami to Miami from the outside, and it just wasn't really authentic about the experience. Uh, I guess they had a few years in there where uh, behind Giancarlo Stanton and Marcelo Zuna, they were a big home run hitting team. But it's funny how the identity now since then is like everything but home runs. So they just didn't get a lot of use out of it. Uh, but more importantly, it's just been refashioned into a standing room only section, uh, more of a party entertainment section and affordable pricing that the stadium didn't really have last year. And I mean, that was one reason why their attendance has lagged so poorly over the last few years is that uh, the pricing was just not reflective of the product. And this is one opportunity they have to add some affordable seating out there. So that's what's very popular. And I guess what you reference aside from that is that they made other ballpark enhancements aside from removing Homer's sculpture. They repainted the really the entire interior of the stadium, getting rid of the lime green, adding a lot of uh, deep blue that they call a Miami blue, uh, some red thrown in there and um, just colors that uh, according to their market research really reflect the genuine Miami. I don't know about all that, but I the really the vast majority of fans actually in Miami are I believe it's an improvement over what they used to have, and maybe eventually it does convert into some actual decent attendance. It hasn't done that yet, but maybe as the season goes on, I think it's going to be very popular among the people that actually have to live with it throughout the season. A little upset because I'm actually going down to see the them play the Indians next week and. Back in November, I was very excited to see that ridiculous thing, and then I heard they were taking it down, so I was a little disappointed, I suppose. But your answer was is one that I had not really even thought about in terms of the whole uh, tourism and trying to draw the non-fan in or the people who you know aren't from Miami into something that should be really wholly Miami's own thing. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't really think about that. Yeah, yeah. To expand on that a little bit, obviously the old owner was Jeffrey Loria, who is a New Yorker, and um, the one. I mean, there were a lot of issues that people he was had the worst. with Loria. You could just say it. It's okay. He was terrible. Yeah, he was the absolute worst. Yeah, and uh, but I guess one particular one is that he never made much of an effort to understand Miami whatsoever, and understand the fan base and sympathize with the fan base in any way. And I mean, that was just one of them with the new stadium that uh, I mean, I don't want to do any revisionist history. When the ballpark opened, it was it was popular, um, even though I think what they have now is better. Uh, I, I think one thing that people have recognized is that it does feel different now that it was inspired really by commute, the community and by the fans. They've made a big point of having a marketing campaign called Demilo Miami, which translated in English just means tell me Miami. Uh, what you want. And that's something that they didn't make an effort to do under the old ownership. Again, it was just, it was Loria's vision of what somebody would appreciate from the outside. And it wasn't carefully done to reflect what his fans actually wanted. Uh, the new ownership has, has tried to do that. Uh, of course, the one thing they haven't done is yet is, of course, assemble a roster that actually wins. And they continue to acknowledge that that's the most important thing and that uh, they're never going to get the exact kind of response um, and the expansion of the fan base that they're looking for unless the team actually turns the corner. And as we talk to you right now, they have the worst record in the league after having one of the worst records last year. So it's still far away from turning the corner with a rebuild. But uh, off the field, um, I'd say that really the majority of the fan base does recognize that the change in ownership is a positive one. See, that's what I was going to ask next, is that it feels like... Um... The opinion of Derek Jeter's, I guess the whole front office's off the field marketing and stuff is, is turned around. But what about the feeling of their their on-field moves? Obviously, it's not there yet. And like you said, their farm system isn't great either. But is there at least a sense of confidence that they're getting somewhere now compared to like two years ago when they wanted to burn? <laughs> they just wanted to to throw Derek Jeter out back to New York and it, it just didn't look great. But is there at least a more sense of confidence now among Marlins fans that they're going in the right direction? Well, I'm going to start on a tangent for you uh, because you guys happen to be covering the Indians and what I believe is the worst move that they made all last offseason and was a, a very um, 
marginal move was trading Nick Whitgren, who, of course, has since been called up by the Indians and has done pretty well for you guys in the bullpen. It was a very marginal move, but it, it was one that I thought the team mishandled, that they sold they sold low on a guy that had missed time with injury, but who I believed heading into this year was going to be one of their higher leverage relievers. And I thought he'd have the opportunity to help the team in the first half and potentially at the all-star break as a controllable reliever with more of a track record. He'd be a guy that could actually bring back multiple young prospects in return instead of what actually happened where they traded him for Jordan Milbrath, who was a reliever the exact same age, but without any of the major league experience. And I thought it was like, uh, just again, it's a very marginal move, but it was trading a guy that was very happy in South Florida, who was expecting his first child uh, in his offseason home, which was right in the area in South Florida, and a guy that really wanted to be a Marlin. And they traded him at a very awkward time that left them without what I thought was respectable depth in their bullpen. And they've had a few of these marginal moves that I thought were not well thought out. But again, that's not what any of you guys really care about. You guys want to know about the big moves. They want, you want to know about trading away, you know, the big core that they had, really their entire core of position players from Stanton to Yelich to Ozuna to D Gordon to JT Real Muto to Justin Bohr. I mean, they cleaned out a really exciting offensive core and the results have been pretty mixed. Um, I, I, we don't have time to go specifically into all the fine details of every one of them. There's been some hits and some misses. Uh, you, you guys know the way that the Yelich trade is trending at the moment. Um, the Stanton one was uh, a, a bit of a salary dump that they may have compromised on the actual talent they were getting in return in order to save money. Um, the Ozuna one was a deep package that could be very interesting. And um, But really, the most successful one that long-term could be the D Gordon trade, and really close behind that, what's, what's off to a really encouraging start is the return for Real Muto. The fact that they got a catcher in Jorge Alfaro was stepped in and instantly become one of their more marketable players. And the two arms that they got in that deal, uh, Sixto Sanchez and Will Stewart, both of them have really extraordinary potential, uh, both in their very early 20s. And that was a kind of move that it dragged on through most of, most of the offseason. I mean, that was the one story that people were paying attention to the Marlins for this offseason is that whole saga of being so obvious that he was going to be traded only to hold on to him until the week before spring training. And, uh, but that patience really paid off because it just seems like they got very fair value for a guy that only had a couple of years left to control and who didn't want to be here. So the complicated angle to all this is that you have multiple guys in there, specifically Stanton, Yelich and Real Muto that all publicly either through themselves personally or through their agents and representatives made it clear that they did not want to be part of the rebuild. And uh, I think that that's one thing that people sometimes overlook is managing those relationships. Uh, it does, by all accounts, seem to be several years until we can expect this team to turn the corner and be a, like a legit contender. And in that meantime, you're going to have to manage relationships with the actual star players that you develop on your own uh, and make sure they don't get impatient, get them to buy into the fact that it it's fun to play baseball in Miami and to live in Miami. And uh, you could question whether or not the front office really understood the importance of that, particularly two off seasons ago. And then even this past off season, whether they're doing enough as salesmen and as um, again, just as relationship managers to make those guys feel comfortable. The one thing that, okay. And then just to bring that around front, uh, their path really to being what I think would be a sustainable contender is making use of all this pitching depth that they have, not just these guys on the major league roster, but if you look at every level of the farm system and especially at the high A Jupiter level, they have a stacked rotation of guys that all look like that all have real upside guys that are, um, uh, if you look at the organization as a whole, we're talking about probably two dozen of these prospects that have legitimate major league starter potential. And uh, you need pitching depth, but you don't need that much pitching depth. And with all the, they're going to have a surplus of pitching, but meanwhile, they have a dearth of hitting. So the critical step is going to be identifying which of these pitchers are real keepers to build around and which one of those you have to flip for bats. And we're not at that stage at this very moment. Um, it might be at that stage a year from now, but probably two years from now where they'll have to make decisions about who is part of their core and which of these guys they could flip in order to balance out the roster. So that's what we're really looking forward to. So what do you see then as that kind of 
contention arc, I guess. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, they have the worst record in, I think, in baseball right now. They aren't planning on being any good. They, um, you know, I mean, they're just, they're, they're rebuilding, but they're also happen to be in a division with legitimately four, well, three great teams, another very good team. I mean, depending on who you want to talk to about which one, but any four of those guys could find their ways in the playoffs. And then you have the Marlins, obviously, in the last place. What do you see as that contention arc, I suppose, as far as they have these two young pitchers already uh, who are 23 years old in um, Alcantara and who is the other one? Uh, Lopez, a couple other decent young arms. But, you know, like some of these guys are longer in the tooth than you'd like, I guess. Like even Alfaro is 26 years old. By the time they're good, I mean, what? who do you expect would be on this team that you're seeing right now, aside from maybe those two pitchers? Is there anyone that we're seeing now that will be – on that contending Marlins team where you just expect it all to be get the, that some of those two dozen young pitchers and turn them into young bats and have that be the core of the, of the future. Yeah. One thing that's a very important factor in all this on the revenue side is that of course to compete in the NL East with four of these other strong teams that seem to be smart and well-financed. It's important that the Marlins see a dramatic change in their own revenue to catch up. And so they hope that the ballpark enhancements that happen this offseason will make a big difference in bringing people out. But as you guys know, the more important factor really is the TV contracts and making sure you're getting really well compensated from that. The Marlins, that, that was one of their biggest gaffes under Jeffrey Loria is that they, ha- they negotiated the worst local television contract in baseball. I'm not entirely sure what the Indians one is at this point, but I'm sure it's several multiple times a bigger payout on an annual basis. The Marlins are making less than $20 million per year from local television these next couple of years before they're able to kick in a new contract with Fox Sports Florida. And that's going to be an absolutely critical factor is being able to nail those negotiations, uh, doubling or tripling the revenue they get from that source in order to divert it into the actual product. Because right now that's, that's simply the case where as much as you want these guys to have their hearts in into building a great baseball team at the ownership level. There, there has to be the revenue to back that up. And the television contract is going to be a big step that, and as well as naming rights to the ballpark. Uh, these are the kind of revenue sources that they need to tap in because of how tough the division is and how smart the division seems to be operating. Uh, that's And that's one reason why they chose this rebuild right now among the actual obvious baseball reasons why they did this reset is because until that revenue starts to become more comparable to their competition in the division, there there's just not really a realistic path into putting together a great team. And so that's one reason why they're at least a couple of years away. Uh, This 2019 season, throw it out 2020 season, throw it out. Uh, I mean, as a result of these seasons, they get really premium top draft picks, but uh, unless they're using all those draft picks for college players, which they have not shown an inclination that they want to do, and even though they have they have a renewed focus on the international free agent market, but uh, those guys are sometimes even more raw than high school kids coming into the draft. So all the, all those players that are coming into, yes, they're really elite talent. This should be in a, a slam dunk elite farm system within within the next year, and certainly within the next year and a half because of uh, because of all the losing at the major league level, they're going to have the resources to spend on amateur players. Um, the question is going to be when if they do develop enough of impact players in the interim to in order to make that leap uh what i mean is if they're they're going to reach a point where they'll want to flip some of their excess pitching for more impact position players but they're only going to do that if they actually have a handful of core players already identified at the major league level uh, i'm really encouraged by alfaro i think he is a long-term major league catcher He's not what Real Muto was, I don't think, as an all-around player, but he's not far off at all. He has some really exciting skills. Uh, Brian Anderson, who early last year, and really for the first half of last year, was in great contention for Rookie of the Year. Uh, he, he's another one that's a little older than you might think. He's going to be 26 this year. Um, so you don't know how much better he's going to be, but for the time being, I'm really convinced that he's a strong all-around player who actually has some surprising defensive versatility. The, the question is on the position player side, if they have anybody else at all, aside from those two, Alfaro and Anderson. And at the moment, I'm not totally convinced that they do. Uh, I don't want to talk about Lewis Brinson right now because that's a really painful topic. And the guy that seems to be at rock bottom, I would not be surprised if he's optioned to AAA 
um, at some point during these couple series with the Indians uh, at the end of this month and the beginning of May. He's really that far away from his actual potential, and uh, he really needs to a full reset, I think, in the minor league level. Uh, one exciting guy they have coming up in the outfield uh, who should make his debut in the next couple months is Monte Harrison, acquired in the Christian Yelich trade, uh, really one of the best athletes in all of professional baseball, and he's off to a great start. He, he's a guy that if uh, he's a guy that all he has to do really is make contact, and if he does that, he's going to be a solidly above average everyday player who has legitimate star potential, which you can't say about most of the position players. Uh, and then it's just a critical year right now for those starting pitchers that are in the major leagues. Uh, as Merritt mentioned, as as both of you guys mentioned, those, those guys are, yeah, further along age-wise than you might expect. Um, and even though they're controllable for the next handful of years, uh, you want them to establish themselves pretty much right now, especially pitching in a very pitcher-friendly home ballpark. Um, so we'll have a better idea of the timeline probably at the end of this year. Um, to see how many of these core pieces are able to identify. Because in order to complete the puzzle, you could flip some of this minor league depth that they have in order to get it. Um, but they're not going to flip that depth and they're not going to like you know put this rebuild into an acceleration until there's some positive signs that are flashing out. And uh, we're speaking right now at a, a pretty low point, to be honest, where you just don't have a lot of answers at most of these positions. And hopefully those answers come in the next few months because otherwise it's just a really tough division and the Marlins are at a lot of disadvantages. And even if the management does its job as best it can, you can't totally make up for all those disadvantages without some good luck. Okay, last question. I don't want to keep it too long, but um, I'm just thinking back to when the Indians were in their own rebuild back at the turn of the decade. We all had favorite players that no one ever thinks about these days who were probably weren't even all that good. Um, I'm thinking of guys like Shelly Duncan or... Jerry Sands, players that you probably don't, whose names you don't recognize, and I barely recognize, but back in the day, they were my favorites, you know? Who is who is someone on this team now that you just look at and you realize deep down probably won't be a long-term guy, but damn it, the fan base loves him, and he's just, he's the heart and soul kind of a guy on the team right now. Oh, it would, I think the perfect guy that fits that template would be Miguel Rojas, who right now is pretty much their everyday shortstop. Uh, on uh, in most situations, he would be a utility guy that plays mostly against left-handers. Uh, it's Miguel Rojas for sure. And uh, it's <laughs> for whatever reason, he has fish stripes blocked on Twitter. He's one of the only players that does. And it's so hard to believe because he's like one of the most just eternally positive people that you'll ever meet in any industry. Someone that he, he connects with fans, every type of fan possible. Um in the ballpark, you you see it on the field. He is he's just eternally positive. He's now thirty years old, I believe. He has a couple years of team control left. Um, he I I'd say maybe he peaked last year. It's hard to say when the actual peak was. Like he, he's a guy that has surprised people. So that's I guess that's the first ingredient is a guy that you don't expect anything of, and he turns into something. And he has definitely turned into something because they got him as what seemed to be a throw in. For, from the D Gordon trade when when they originally acquired I can't even remember exactly what trade I think it was along with D Gordon when they acquired him four and a half years ago three and a half four a while ago but he was a total throw-in that I, I don't think people fully anticipated even making the active roster but he just stuck around in a limited role and he's so smooth defensively he's so eager to play a lot of different positions he's played every infield position and with the state of their outfield right now, I'm sure he'd be like the first guy to sign up to play in the outfield as well. Uh, a couple of his moments that probably have been visible beyond just the Miami bubble are times where off the field, he is so eager to engage with fans and give away his game-worn stuff, like give away bats, give away gloves, and spend so much of his time in the community just engaging with people in such a genuine way. He has an adorable son who I think is just starting to play baseball. And some of the videos of them together are really heartwarming. He's an, he's a guy that's from Venezuela and someone who is very proud to be Venezuelan. And there are a good number of Venezuelans in the South Florida community and on the roster and across Major League Baseball. And he's just a really good ambassador for that country, which has become a pretty decent hotbed for baseball talent. 
So he, he's the all-around great guy, uh, almost perfect if he would unblock fish stripes on Twitter because we want to say nice things about him. But he is, uh, yeah, he's a guy that makes each game something interesting to look forward to. Like, you have to try a lot of gimmicks, to be honest, you know, to keep a fan base engaged during these games in the major league level when you know that most of the future is still in the minors. And um, he's, uh, we, we try some of those gimmicks at, at fish stripes to keep every game fresh and fun. And uh, but it helps to have individuals that are really passionate about the rebuild. He's a guy that, as if you look across baseball, um, pretty much every team it seems over the past few months has handed out multi year extensions in order to keep guys away from free agency, um, at different stages of their careers, too, not just star players. The, the Marlins have been one team that have sat that out, you know, really mindful of their future commitments. But I mean, Rojas profiles as the type of guy that I think he has more value, you know, being in that clubhouse and being an influence on the younger players than he does as a trade chip. So he's someone that I would love to see them extend for several more years just to keep him around at a really reasonable reasonable price because I, I think whatever price they lock him in at, it would be a great value just because of everything that he brings off the field. All right, Eli, thanks for joining us. Um, this was great talking about the Marlins. I know, like we said before the show, it's not a, a team you'd think that most Indians fans would be interested in, but I think it's neat to – one of the best things about baseball is like getting in depth with these other organizations that are like whole other countries <laughs> compared to yours. So it's neat to see that. Um, so why don't you let us know, obviously fishtypes.com, everybody can find you, but where else can they find um, Eli assessment on the internet here? Yeah, well I manually handle a lot of the social media, but you could also find me at real Eli and that's spelled E L Y spell my name a little differently than most. Um, yeah. I'm, you'll find me on the website, but Pretty much, uh, yeah, every single day. It, it's a big passion of mine to manage it. Uh, but also, yeah, just hanging around on Twitter, Instagram, uh, doing our own podcast as well on Fish Stripes. We're, we're pretty new at that stuff. But uh, we're finding a lot of fun angles of the team to cover. So you could find the Fish Stripes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, yeah, maybe someday down the road we'll have you guys on as well just to get that other perspective, uh, get to talk about guys that are actually producing at the major league level. I mean, that's, that's such a novel idea to us right now. <laughs> we would be happy to do it. Thank you, Eli. That's going to do it for us this week. Um, we'll see everyone next week.